Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we are joined by Marine Vietnam veteran George Haught. George, who is this in this picture? This is the gun platoon that I started out with. Out of all these people in that picture, myself and the two people in front of me on the left side are the only ones that survived Way City. It's very hard to imagine the kind of horrific urban combat that you're talking about. It's hard to imagine the odds of 16,000 versus 300. It's hard to imagine staying up for four days without adrenaline and you know fighting and the danger. How in the world do you even begin to talk about it when you come home? Did, did you ever talk about it with your family? I did not. Did people ask you about your service when you came home? And I'm talking about when you came home and uh, 1969, I think it would have been. No. And you never told anybody about it then? I, I didn't, and this has been a great vehicle for me. The breakfast, getting this opportunity to come out and talk with people who would have an understanding. And an interest in hearing, an interest in listening to it. I've met a lot of, a lot of nice people doing this, a lot of nice people. Thank you very much, George, for coming today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for bringing your family. George, thanks so much for joining us today. So you're a Marine Corps, Vietnam veteran, heavy weapons guy. Yes. Walk me through, uh, were you drafted? Did you join knowingly, willingly? I volunteered, yes. And why was that? There were five of us, and we kind of made a pact on the riverbank one day, half drunk, 16th birthday coming up. <laughs> and uh, one of the guys, his father was on EWO, and we had utmost respect for this man. And uh, we all started more or less training at that point, out every day running, you know, and starting at the end of 66, we all started, you know, filtering into the Marine Corps. I went in in May of 67 myself. One of the guys had went in in December. He was already in Vietnam. A week before I left to go to boot camp, he got killed. I went to his funeral, and his dad was the Iwo vet. He earned a silver star over there. So the father come up to me and says, you still going to do this? I said, I got to. He says, I knew that that would be your answer because it would be mine too. So, so the, he had joined in December, so this was all of five months. He went to basic, all the training, and right to Vietnam. Right. He had only been in country maybe 35, 40 days. But um, then I'm in basic a second one got killed, July 4th, 1967. You kind of know the story about that. He was a Medal of Honor winner. He was your cousin. Yes. And I had an emotional get-together in East Liberty with a man that actually put him in a body bag and brought him down off of the mountain. How did you find out about him? You were in training at the time? I got a letter from family. And uh, because he was, you know, too distant, you 
you don't get out for that. So ended up graduating in August, went over to ITR in Camp Geiger, North Carolina, took heavy weapons training, qualified on the machine gun, 3.5 rocket launcher, 106 recoilless rifle, flamethrower. All the coolest toys. All the coolest toys. <laughs> and only, only two of them did I ever use after that. Then from there, I had 30 days, and then I went out to Pendleton and done jungle training there. And then from there, 12-hour flight over to Vietnam. So at this point, so you were on your way to Vietnam. There were five of you initially. Two were KIA already. Where were the other two in their process? They joined right after I did. So they were going through training probably at the time. Correct. And uh, got to Vietnam. It was uh, November 1st of 67. And you go over there, you, you went by yourself. Like it was just an individual Marine? Correct. There was, there was a plane load of Marines. When we was flying over, you know, the pilot took and made a trip around Iwo Jima. He took and banked the plane after he went one way and come back the other way so that everybody could see it. We found out later that he had been a Marine pilot. And that was nice. And then we, we landed in Da Nang and like 120 degrees. Smelled like in crap. November. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Smelled, smelled like crap. A stench that, you know, <laughs> you long remember. And uh, from there, went out to Gulf Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. How old were you at this point? I just turned 19. Okay. Just turned 19. You were just a kid. Just a kid. And the other two guys were also with 5th Marines. So Small world. Yeah. So you get to your 19, it's already very real to you because you've lost two friends before you even got there. Correct. What was your mindset when you hit the ground? Were you like, all right, I'm going to do what I have to do. Revenge. I'm going to make it home. Or that, you, revenge. You wanted, to, you wanted to kill the enemy. Yes. And you got your opportunity to do that pretty quickly, right? First time we went out on a patrol, it was just a small skirmish, you know. And then next time we went out, we went out on an operation called Essex. We were out on it for like about two weeks. And we were supposed to be, you know, chasing some NVA on a search and destroy. Well, ended up, our company run into a battalion of NVA. And that was my first real experience, you know, with the heavier combat. And we lost 23 Marines in that two weeks out of the company. The company was roughly 100? 150. 150. And you had, the, you had the PIG, you had the M60. Yes. And what was the other one you had? I had a 3.5, but I wasn't carrying a 3.5 then until we got into Way City. When you went into that operation, how many rounds of ammo did you have for the 60? Probably about 4,000 amongst the platoon. How quickly did you go through that? Uh, pretty quickly. <laughs> so you guys were getting regular resupplies? We were. We were. They would, they would come through and, you know, drop them out of a UE helicopter. And uh, that aspect of it was fine. You know, later on we find out that, you know, supplies weren't as readily available sure. or get to you as quickly. So that was your first real taste of the big boys? First real taste, yeah. We had, we had just run into the local Viet Cong, you know, not much training, 
you know, they'd pop off some rounds at you, you know, they'd, they'd set up some booby traps. But uh, no, this was the first time that I had encountered, you know, the more well-trained and more disciplined enemy. Did it give you a sense of confidence afterwards? Like, all right, guys, that was really bad and we made it through it. We can pretty much take on anything at that point, right? It did. Well, I mean, there were heavy losses, 23 out of 150. That's, that's yeah. a lot. That's a high rate of casualties. Yeah. Did that, did that 23 include wounded or that was just KIA? That, that was KIAs. Probably half of the company, you know, was wounded to some extent or another. Sure. But not much way to get them back off of a mountain other than carry them afterwards. So at the end, you'd been in country like a couple of months at the end of this? I hadn't even been there three weeks. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this was quick. Real quick. Real quick. And it, it only got worse, right? It only got worse. You know, then you're, you're young and you're not thinking. And as we went along, you know, and I look back on it, it was, you know, the buildup that was coming for Tet because every time we run into a force— the force got larger and larger, and the encounters become more violent and more prolonged. And they were much more complex, too. Like, the, the enemy was getting better. Absolutely, because you got into more strategy of the combat. A lot of Vietnam vets, you know, they would, they would get into a firefight. They would be shooting at whatever, sometimes not even know what the hell they were shooting at, and then... You know, they would call in air, they would call in artillery, you know, and then they would move on, you know, maybe go out and look and see if there was anybody laying around. But you guys were a lot of close quarters stuff. A lot of close quarters stuff. Which is, I guess, arguably the most violent type of fighting you could do when it's like door to door. It is. When you can see the whites of the eyes of the guys. Yeah. Way City was probably the most barbaric and brutal form of combat that you could ever imagine. So between Essex, that was the operations title? Essex. Between and, Essex and Way City, what kind of, how long was that? Well, it was two months. In December, we had Operation Auburn, and then we had, I want to say Baxter Garden, but there was like four major operations that I went on before Way City. So it was nonstop. It's not like you had a break it at was, any point. You were fighting... Your first right. four or five months straight. Right. right. So let's talk about Way. Can you give me the background on Way? Why, why did you guys go there? What was the mission? Originally, they told us, you know, that we had to go in. There was a few hundred NVA in the city that were causing some trouble. Alpha 1-1 was the first company out. They had 150 men. They were maybe half an hour into the city. And they were already suffering 50% losses. And that was totally unexpected, right? Like they thought Absolutely typical operation, unexpected. we'll go in there, we'll clear it out. They told us to ground our gear, you know, we'd be back in 12 hours. So you were just going in light? Going in light. And Alpha 1-1 was the same way. We get a call about 45 minutes after they kicked off. We were up on top of a mountain overnight watching the rockets Coming in on Fubai, watching rockets going in the way, probably a quarter of a mile from us. We could see the company. We asked to take and go get them, and they told us not to engage for whatever reason. For us as Marines, the 
be told not to engage was, you know, very, very strange. Right. It's not a difficult answer or a difficult order to get because you're raring to go, I imagine. Right. You see your friends down there getting, getting hit. You want right. to go help them. And, you know, it was, it was very attainable and very quickly. When do you get the order to move in? The next day? Yeah. Uh, this was, we come off of the mountain at 0500. I'm guessing not a lot of sleep for anybody. No. When we was actually coming into Fubai, the convoy with Alpha 1-1 was going out to Waste City. So it was still dark. And they were probably gone maybe an hour. We were told, you know, drop your gear, get your asses going, and get away as fast as you can. You know, Alpha needs your help. So we jump on the convoy, and we're up. Convoy took fire all the way up, you know, which was atypical. But the thing that was out of place that all of us noticed, there wasn't many civilians out, and especially for a holiday, nobody walking around on the roads or anything. Did you guys realize at the time, like, this is not a good sign? We did. And when we got within maybe two miles away, an old lady come running out, you know, and she was saying, Buku VC, Buku VC. You know, we just didn't pay much attention to her because, you know, we had, we had been through a lot already, you know, and figured it wasn't anything that we're, we're not going to be able to handle. It almost makes it a little easier if all the civilians are gone, then you don't have to worry so much about collateral damage and that kind of stuff. But when we, we got the way and we started taking fire... And damn, did we take fire. I mean, I thought I'd been fired upon before. But when we got ambushed coming into way, it was by far the worst that I had seen yet. We had three thirty caliber machine guns at 10, 12, and 2 that opened up on us beside small arms. And then we jump off the truck. And I, I can remember when I hit the ground, I twisted my ankle or something because you know, I had the weight of the 60 coming off the top of the truck. And we go down, and there's a traffic circle. And here's an Arvin tank just blown to shit. I mean, there was, there was two Arvin soldiers hanging out of the tank, and they were still burning, you know. So we knew that something, something major was on. So we ended up doing a frontal assault. There was 15, 20 two-story red brick buildings, and we just took out after them. So these were... Like, is this where the machine gun nests were at? Like, were they, tell me about their fortifications a little bit. Like, Well, at the time, we didn't know, but they were, they were all bunkered down within the houses. The houses were barricaded. The doors were either nailed shut, because when we went to kick them, I mean, it took a hell of a lot of effort. Some of them had the bodies of the people that lived in the houses barricading the doors. But that was the first of many frontal assaults that, we would end up having to do. It took us about five hours to take and clear out enough space that we could take and move to even start helping Alpha. The enemy were in between you and Alpha Company. You, Correct. Okay, so it wasn't a straight line shot to go in and reinforce them. No. So Alpha was in essence surrounded then. They were, and we didn't know at the time, but we were too because, right. you know, they... They moved a bunch of people up in back of us. So we start going in a direction of their fire and barbed wire. We found their commanding officer laying in a barbed wire, bleeding to death. 
The only thing that he could say to us was, go help my Marines. We left the corpsman and the squad with him and took off. And, you know, we had some more houses in between that we had to take and clear out. They were trapped in a cane field. We fired our way out into the cane field and had a bunch of machine guns and small arm fire coming in on us. Had you guys already taken casualties yourself at that point? We had taken a few, not as many as as what Alpha had, but a few. It was just unreal that we hadn't taken more because essentially, you know, what we were running at was one of five battalions that were right in a general vicinity. And we go and we hook up with Alpha and they're in a cane field up to their asses in mud and decide, you know, we're going to do a frontal assault again. The guy counted out to three. We all got up, start charging. Uh, ended up, we reached our objective, but we lost a hell of a lot of guys running at the machine guns, you know, that are bunkered down and in, in barricaded buildings. And it was just you guys. Like you didn't, did you have any sort of artillery support or air support or anything? We were denied air because it was so overcast, planes couldn't fly. It was at the end of the rainy season, and a typhoon was actually coming through. The artillery was flatly denied because it was a historical city, and we were not going to destroy the city. Without artillery, without air, like, so you couldn't really get medevacs either, right? We could not. You had to ground evac anyone that you wanted to get out, and was there a road to get people out on? Is there any way to get them out to the rear? It was sealed off. Once we had made it into the MACV compound, the people in the MACV was watching as they brought, you know, more troops in and back of us. And we got up there, and it was like, I don't know, two or three battalions. It's just like they were going to a stinking parade marching out of the hills. And, you know, more or less, we were, we were sealed. And it was just, just a question of time before, you know, they started... To squeeze. So we're we're in a MACV. We're probably there for an hour. This is all still the first day, right? Yeah, first six hours. And we got the orders that we had to go to the other side of the river to extract a South Vietnamese general. We took and went across the Perfume River Bridge. They allowed us to go over across the bridge. We got halfway, three-quarters of the way across the bridge. A thirty caliber opened up on us. Bullets were just ricocheting all around the stinking girders, and people were going down. Then they started putting rockets in and mortars. We fight our way through, get to the other side. One Marine runs up and throws some grenades into the bunker, takes out the thirty caliber. We take and make a left after that. Go down about 300 yards. See this huge walled structure. And I mean, just a gigantic North Vietnamese flag. So we make a right and we're heading up to the gate where we're supposed to just go knock on the door and go in, you know, and hey, we're here. And uh, as bad as the first time we come under fire and away, this time was even worse. We started out with 150 guys going across. 55 of them would be dead or wounded within a half an hour. 
We was taking fire from a 50 caliber that was in a tower. We was taking fire from a 30 caliber that had us flanked along the expanse of the wall, which was, it was a square mile, I know it now, and there was a quarter of a mile that was firing on us from two levels. You had light machine guns plus your small weapons. The only thing that they didn't do that they could have done and probably eliminated all of us was to start throwing grenades. Why? Never could figure out. But I would say that we were taking fifteen to 20,000 rounds a minute in on us. We poured back as much as we could. But the walls of this structure, you know, again, didn't know then, but know now that the wall was 30 meters high, 30 meters thick. But we were putting out, we're just like if we had just been shooting paintballs at them. Right. Because it, it was not making a damn bit of difference. We ran out of ammunition after about 45 minutes. You look up and down, you see your riflemen, you know, and they're fixing their bayonets. I pulled my sidearm out, looked at my A-gunner and said, I love you, brother. I'll see you upstairs. And we prepared ourselves to die. And it seemed like an interminable time that we were there, you know, just waiting for him to realize, you know, that we weren't firing back. Like I said, it, it just seemed like forever. And then we heard a 50 caliber, and a guy had come across from the other side with a truck. He brought a couple little civilian vehicles that people had hot-wired. He started firing on the wall. They trained their fire on him. We started grabbing up our dead and our wounded. We just thrown them on the back of the truck. The ones that wouldn't fit, we would throw over our shoulders, and we just took off running back across the bridge. We were about halfway across, and they hit it with a recoilless rifle. They hit one of the embutments. The damn bridge just shook like hell. We all thought we was going to end up down the river. But by the grace of God, we got back over to the other side, and that was probably the most frightening moment that I ever had in my life. So if it wasn't for that one fifty cal guy, the one gunner, that's the only thing that saved you guys. Did he make it back as well? He did. Lucky son of a gun. He w- yes. His, his luck would run out about six days later. He was running across the street and a fifty took him out. I know that you fired a fifty caliber. The devastation that a fifty caliber does to the human body is beyond explaining. I don't know if you've seen the aftermath of firing it, but it, it just... It's not pretty. No. So you made it across. At that point, you, were you relieved? Did you think, okay, we made it? Or was it like, we have to do that again? What, what was going through your mind? That we would probably have to do it again. There was no illusion that you were safe yet? No. We pretty much knew that before we would ever get out, if we would even get out, that we were going to have to kill one hell of a lot of people just to have room to take and fight. That was the reality, you know. And when we got back to the compound where we were, we looked across from the towers in the MACV and been another 15, 25 minutes, there was two columns of NVA marching out of the hill. 
At that point, they had a reinforced division within Way. I know now that they had a regiment in reserve in the mountains. All the time we was there, we was wondering, you know, where in the hell are all these people coming from? And there were some elaborate tunnel systems. They would clean out to the South China Sea. They would come down in these tunnels and come out behind us. You know, it's like, what are we going to do to stop the stem? And we're talking regiments, individuals, we're talking thousands of enemy soldiers. And yes. there's, before the casualties, between Golf and Alpha Company, there's only 300 to begin with. 300. And at this point, you're probably down to 150, if that. If that. So it's, it's easy, like a 100 to 1 kind of fight. Yes. And then that night, you know, when they was going to take and make the push, and they didn't disappoint. We started getting rockets in the MACV compound. We pulled our assets down waiting for the fire to stop. Then we put the guns and everything back up and just like wave and wave and wave. And, you know, I mean, just you're raking the streets. You just have a free fire zone. And, you know, people are going down. People are going down on both sides. But at least in that instance, we had a little bit of the upper hand because they were coming at us. We weren't going after right. them. I don't know how many thousands we killed overnight. The next morning, there was probably a hundred bodies still laying in the street couple dozen within the compound and just through the light rain it's just like you know there was a river of blood flowing in front of us it just by this point it had, none of you guys had slept in about three days about two days for us and no no rest in sight no resupplies in sight no the macv was very well supplied before we got there and there was an armory that we was supposed to supposed to be able to take and go out and get munitions from and that we found out by the time we reached the armory that the Arvin during the night had decided you know rather than defend it or blow it you know they'd just run and leave it open six o'clock after first light we started going out into the city you know it's like four or five hours you know we're running frontal assaults for man fire teams at buildings to get a foothold Guys, just going down, you run out there, you pull them back, you send four more, you know, until you finally get that little foothold where you have some place to take and fight from. You take two houses and like 12 hours of fighting, I mean, 12 hours of nonstop fighting. We had taken four houses on each side of the street. We had all this around us that would just squeeze back in on us. And Alpha was tasked with going out and trying to set up an LZ so that they could bring in another unit and maybe get some of, you know, the severely wounded out. And they had, I don't know, 55, 60 guys that they sent out. Probably half of them shouldn't have even been in combat to establish this LZ. And it took them almost seven hours. They had... I don't know, two or three battalions that these 50 guys were going up against just to carve out enough space to take and bring a chopper in, you know. And then when the choppers come in, the choppers had to come in hot. They would just, you know, they get fired on. And these guys were great, you know. They'd, they'd stay down as long as they could without getting blown up. You know, they'd drop off some ammunition and, you know, take as many as they could in the short little hop that they were able to do. 
And when they brought Fox Company in on the first, it was like, I don't know, close to 40 hours that we had been fighting just, just the two companies, you know. And back in the back, they got this grand illusion that because now, theoretically, we were supposed to be at almost 500 Marines, that what we were supposed to encounter should not be a damn problem. And they couldn't comprehend the scope of what was going on. There was absolutely no way of convincing them that things were worse than what intelligence had told them. Right. And that's, you know, that was the dumbest part of it. Theoretically, there's close to 500 Marines, but in reality, you're maybe... In reality, I doubt, I doubt that we had 250, yes. Because Fox, I mean, as soon as they ventured out in the street, because they didn't know what they were into either, you know, and they got chewed up pretty damn fast. And even after all this, this is still, this is the beginning. Yeah, it is. And how, how long did this whole battle last? 31 days. And what was the casualty rate over those 31 days? My unit's casualty rate over the, over the 31 days was 130%. So 150 in the company's beginning strength. How many, how many made it out, not severely wounded or killed? I'm one of the few that survived the whole 31 days. I think there were three or four of us at the time. There might be myself and one other guy that's still around now. Over the 31 days, how many more waves of reinforcements did you guys get? On the second, they brought up another company, which with Alpha 1, 1, and 3 companies of 2, 5, you know, on paper was a battalion, uh, which was, you know, supposed to be close to 1,000 Marines. I don't know that we ever had more than 500 in there at one time. And then the 12th of February, they brought in 1-5, the whole battalion, put them on the north side of the river, and they fought within the citadel where we got our asses kicked the first day. It was rough. You know, it's like I thought that they should have just let us clear out south side, go north, because we had the experience. They had nothing they got into the same restrictions. They couldn't use artillery to start with. They couldn't use air. And they were just getting destroyed. I mean, they were down on the floor of the Citadel, and everybody was firing down on them. And it, you know, just not a nice place to be. Right. 31 days of this. So after it was over, did you get any kind of break? Did they send you back to refit for any period? No. Went out on another 30-day mission, you know, trying to destroy what was trying to escape the city before they got back into Laos. That's when we discovered the tunnel complexes and how they was getting supplies and everything in behind us and the troops. We went through these tunnels. We followed them all the way back. And they had tons and tons and tons of rice and bandages and weapons and munitions and you know it's just like there was a hospital they actually built a hospital down in there and when we took the hospital complex within way city they had been using it also as a hospital in the command headquarters it was very well thought out and they were in it for the long haul yes their intention was to bleed us to death you know they they bled us but like a old Marine Corps saying, you know, when you go up the mountain, you can't back down. Right. 
31 days, then another 30-day op. There was just no letting up. By this point, I mean, everyone's exhausted. Uh, you've lost a ton of weight. You can't, you've been fighting door to door, so you're shooting heavy weapons indoors. You can't hear anything. Smoke in your eyes, you can't see anything. The cordite, you know, just hangs in the air. Just, you know, in every place that you walk, you're walking in somebody's blood. Theirs, yours, you're just caked with blood. At this point, is all the fear just gone because you've just been through too much? Fear's gone, yes. And you really can't go into combat with fear because then you have to think about what you're doing. And if you're taking time to think about what you're doing, you're dead. If you're not going solely on instinct. Now, was I afraid all these 31 days? Absolutely. But after you've seen so much, you know, and you've endured so much, you just go into a mode of survival. You know, that's your only thinking. What's going to get me and the people around me through this? And I mean, I, I lost eight guys off of my team. I had one guy to come in. He was only in country three days. The first time we encountered, he got hit in the head with a thirty caliber. His first time on the streets. I didn't even know the kid's name, you know. He started introducing himself, you know. Look, you just follow me. I don't want to know your name. I don't want to know anything. Just follow me. Do what I do, you know. And it was just the way you had to be, you know. And you knew when you got the replacements in that these guys have got zero chance of surviving probably. If they get lucky and they listen and they don't panic, you know, you might be able to get them through. But it just wasn't the way you should be, but it's the way you had to be. And that's a lot of weight for a 19-year-old. It was. And I carried it, carried it around for a long time, a real long time. Fortunately, I, I ran into a Marine that got me involved with the breakfast club. I went to a couple breakfast, and finally, a year and a half now, probably, I tried telling my story for the first time. It's just like you have this movie that plays out in your head when you're talking, and the film was running faster than I could process what the film was running. But it took you 47 years. 48 years before 48 I years. started talking about it. Do you wish you had talked about it earlier? I do. And I had talked about it, you know, reunions and that, and combat recovery group had gotten into it. Like your family didn't know or anything, right? No, no. They seen some of the documentaries, but they never heard it from me until August of last year. Oldest daughter and my two grandchildren heard me speak about it for the first time. And it was, it was very emotional for me to try and speak to him. And I, I told my granddaughter, who was 12 at the time, you know, I says, you're going to hear me say some things, you know, that that's how I had to be then, not who I am now. And she kind of understood. And I think at that point, for her and for the other ones, that it become more than just the documentaries that they had seen. And I, I mean, I couldn't even look at him when I talked. I, you know, yeah. I focused someplace else. How did you feel after you, you told it and they knew? Was it relief? Was it, I don't know, what, 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 
Was there any, did, was there any change in your feeling after you told it kind of publicly and your family heard? I felt better. And then, you know, I talked about going into the university and how after just a few minutes in there, I was deaf and we wanted to stop and get some apples at the orchard on the way home. And I stopped. I couldn't hear a thing. I mean, it just, I could absolutely hear nothing. Hmm. And it was just like I was back in the university for that few minutes before, you know, the kids would start talking and shaking. You know. But yeah, it's just, I tried going to the wall. The wall is made out of the same granite as the floors were in the university. And all I seen on the wall wasn't names. It was just bloody boot prints. And I couldn't, I couldn't separate the two. Right. And I've, I've not tried to go back since, or even the moving versions, you know, to see if that still happens. So you're getting ready to go back to Way in January. I am. Are you excited? Are you anxious? Are you nervous? Are you, what are you I feeling? I don't really know how I feel, you know, at, at this point. I know it's something that I have to do. With it being the 50th anniversary, I'm going to have a large support group while I'm there because a whole lot of the guys that I fought with are going back with me. So that aspect of it, you know, is great. What's going to happen on the backside of that, God only knows. Right. But it, I do know that it's something that, you know, I have to do. And are most of the guys that are still around, are most of them going to go back, or is it? Right now, they're 16 beside myself. It's a big group. Yes. And the tour leader was my company commander during the battles. So. That'll be nice. Yeah. You have to come back and let us know after the trip. Oh, absolutely. How that goes. You tough son of a bitch, George. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Made out of just pure steel. <laughs> Man, thanks so much for coming and doing this. I know it's not easy. There's going to be guys that hear this. It's going to help them. So we really appreciate it. I hope so. And if anybody is dealing with issues, you can't keep it in. It's not something that you're ever going to be cured of. It's always going to be there. You need to face the monster. Even Marines need to talk to somebody every once in a while, right? Absolutely. You know, we have good support systems. Sometimes the people that are closest to us, and we don't realize how much they are helping. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. 